Over the Ball is brought to you by Soccer America. Soccer America, the soccer paper of record. Go to SoccerAmerica.com and sign up for your subscription today. More information on all our sponsors at OverTheBall.com slash sponsors. Hey, this is Bob Lee, and you're listening to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, the world's game from an American perspective. <laughs> hey, everybody, welcome to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn and Dave Gallego. Uh, our producer was just saying it's Valentine's Day tomorrow. I don't know what that means for you and I, Dave. Uh, I'm not sure if anything. I'm on the road in Florida, uh, just was in Antarctica. I think we mentioned that in last week's show, um, but I just got off a 30 hour trip. So uh, I'm here. I'm alive. I'm up. I'm like. Uh, I'm like Ali Frazier. I've, I've went a bunch of rounds and I'm still standing. So today, Dave, I'm very excited to talk to uh, our guest, uh, Willie Roy, legendary coach of the Chicago Sting. Boy, grew up, uh, you know, just idolizing this guy. I mean, had some great Chicago Sting teams. I mean, you were a little young and dude when you were watching him, uh, you know, the old NASL days and they actually beat the Cosmos uh, for the soccer bowl, that they, as they used to call it. But uh, yeah, it'd be fun. It'd be fun to talk to him. Yeah, you know, he was the first American to score at Azteca in 1972. How cool is that? Uh, have that on your resume. Azteca is, I think, about 110 seats. Uh, 110,000. You know, 110,000 seats. Yeah, they expanded I, from yeah. 110. And, and they're the one, <laughs> from 110, yeah. That's, that's the biggest crowd I ever played in front of, was 110. <laughs> Azteca Sea uh, Food and Taco Bar. That was we were playing out back. A little kick around. But no, yeah, I mean, this is the thing. And I'm, I'm going to ask uh, Coach Roy when he gets on, but uh, which will be in a couple of minutes. But uh, I didn't know he was the player that he was either, you know, because I was young enough to just know that I wanted to play for him as a coach. And I was even a little too young. I mean, uh, he was coaching the Sting in those, uh, uh, you know, late 70s, early 80s. Uh, and I think by the time I got sort of drafted out of college, it was 84 and the whole NESL went under. So it was... Uh, you know, it was done by that time. Then they were yeah, no, it got pretty. Stuff. Yeah, it got pretty brutal. About, I mean, you're looking at like seven, 1978. You see the Cosmos; they're averaging like fifty thousand. I mean, some games they were seventy, eighty thousand, but they averaged yeah. fifty. And, and then you see some. That, then in 1984, it dwindled down to nothing. So I definitely want to ask him about some of the attendance um, back in the 70s because. You know, it's interesting, you know, you, you go from playing the Cosmos to, say, then then playing Rochester, where you're, you're playing in front of right. 6,000 people. So, you know, those things intrigue me. So I'm looking forward to chatting with him about that. Well, that was, that was part of the problem, was you had these teams, like the Cosmos, were spending multi-millions of dollars, and then it was sort of top-heavy, because the other teams underneath couldn't afford to play or pay that much, and so they, weren't, they didn't have the fan base, they didn't have the, the Time Warner money, um, and so... You know, when this league started, MLS, they basically said, hey, guys, we got to build this, the infrastructure to make this somewhat supportable. Yeah. Um, you know, and so, you know, it had a lot of glamour, though. You know, Mick Jagger used to helicopter in and watch the games at Giant Stadium and, uh, you know. Pretty pretty amazing time. So yeah, anyway, yeah, so, yeah, yeah pulling a, a Joe Namath where he's walking around with a fur coat. So yeah, it's pretty uh, pretty wild stuff back then. Yeah, he was he was uh, he was amazing too. I worked at his camp too. Met him a bunch of times, knocked it around with him. Uh, but he was a legend. Died early, you know. Uh, yes. Loved his, uh, you know, loved the cigarettes and smoking and uh, and uh, boozing and good food. So he went he went out in style. Anyway, I wanted to talk about a couple of quick things before Coach Roy gets on. A um, couple of things, you know, I've been keeping my eye on Daryl DK. A lot of us have. Uh, we're all kind of seeing, you know, trying to hope 
or which striker is going to kind of, you know, leap out of the pack, uh, P-Fuck or DK, you know, um, and, and we're all, you know, he was doing really well. He was playing really well, solid, and he just, uh, an Achilles tendon uh, injury, which is really, a, really a bad one. Uh, no, well, yeah, and it's his second one. I mean, and last year it was the it was the left, and now it's the right. Uh, no, I'm sorry, no. Last year it was the right, now it's the left, so it's not even the same one. So, uh, you know, tough because he's very popular, very charismatic player. Yeah. Um, you know, so, and we had a lot of hope because we, you know, this is a guy who we kind of counted on to score, so it's, it's a big blow. I mean, he's not going to be in the Copa America now. Um, so, you know, anybody who's not familiar with DK and, and Achilles injuries, just think, uh, Aaron Rodgers. I mean, look what happened yeah. to him. It's another well, poor guy. Second one in two years. That's the thing. A couple of things there. A couple of points to be made. One, it's sort of an older man's injury. Uh, that's all of us try to stay off the basketball court when you're over 45, because, you know, all of our friends who, who blow out their Achilles tendon. So, uh, you know, he's a young man, so hopefully it will heal. Hopefully it's not that, uh, that severe, but generally any type of Achilles injury is. And it's interesting, you know, talking to physiologists that I've, you know, worked with um, when I was playing, a lot of, they say you hurt your ankle or your knee on one side and you start to bear weight in a different yeah. way and you yep. start to injure the other side, something else goes, you know? So, uh, uh, you know, so we're hoping for Daryl that it's not uh, really serious and that he can rehab from this and, um, and then take his rightful place. On the national team, score some goals for us. And speaking of national team players, uh, Gio Reyna got on for Nottingham Forest uh, this weekend in the Premier League. I thought he came on very late, but very I thought late. he was kind of impactful. I uh, think so. Yeah. He, he I think so. He, he, yeah, I mean, he couldn't say them. Um, but, you know, he came in, I think, in like the 74th, 75th minute. But, uh, yeah, no, I think he looked good. Yeah, he, he created a, a few chances. And so I think that probably will get him on the pitch maybe a little earlier, if not a start next week. So uh, yeah, that's yeah. Once stuff. he becomes yeah, once he becomes familiar with their system, then uh, then he'll be good. I think it was a good move. I mean, just to, just for the sheer fact that he speaks the language. I mean, that would be a hurdle for anybody in any other country. So just sure. the mere fact that he speaks the language, and of course, he has a a, a, a teammate from the uh, men's national team um, with Matt Turner. So that that should help him be more comfortable yeah. in a quicker fashion. Yeah, well, we shit on Matt last week, so hopefully Matt kind of gets out of the doldrums and starts, uh, you know, getting back to the form that he was in before. It's t- you know, it's tough to be a goalkeeper. I really, uh, you know, you're in your head so much, you're back there and no action for long chunks of time, yep. and all of a sudden the ball comes down and it's it's everything. You know, you got so frustrating. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. You be twiddling so, your thumbs. Yeah. Hey, so uh, your text to me uh, when I was out at sea there, and I think it was Buenos Aires when, by the time I got your text, but about Brazil not being in the Olympics. Oh, my God. Talk about yeah. that. And, and, suicides and the, in Brazil over that. Kidding me? Yeah. And they lost. You were in Buenos Aires, so they, they lost to Argentina. So that means that the two-time defending champion will not be part of the Olympics this summer. So that's a shocker. Uh, you know, and by the way, <laughs> their World Cup team is only in sixth place right now with qualifying. I mean, I'm sure they'll get in, but um, again, they're only in sixth place, so they're not they're not setting the world on fire. And uh, I, I think the world has caught up to them a little bit. As you know, there's more parity in in world football now. Um, you know, so uh, you know, it was interesting though, David. I was I watched a lot of soccer because first of all, it was on every television set sure. everywhere. People were playing. I got to tell you, so I'm watching first division, Argentinian soccer. Um, the level, I think, is MLS. It's the same. 
I, I think there are, uh, it's, it's a little destructive, um, very aggressive, some great skills, really good stuff, but they didn't, I guess I'm used to watching mostly the premier league where possession is big, uh, Syria, ah, you know, uh, even league, but I was watching it and, um, you know, knocking the ball forward sometimes, uh, you know, uh, breaking up play, very physical. I thought, you know, thought MLS is right there. I guess, you know, what I was, I guess the, what I was thinking was like, yeah, the leagues are great. And what happens is you have a league, you have the level of play is better than it's ever been in the United States now, or let's say in Argentina. And then certain players, just the cream rises and they get scooped up and they go off to the bigger leagues. Yeah. All the top talent's been siphoned out. All the top talent's been siphoned out of these these little ancillary leagues. I mean, not that Argentina is a, uh, it's, it's a soccer nation, of course, but again, all the top talent sucked out. Yeah. And, and I watched, you know, I was driving to the airport. I don't even know if it was yesterday or today. I don't know. I've been up probably yesterday, but uh, all along the medium strips, like between the two highways were people playing soccer everywhere, everywhere. Even, even guys training, doing sprints, doing, you know, so it is, uh, it is their, their sport. There's nothing else being played. Um, you know, the, so. speaking of the Olympics, I found it so intriguing, the nations that actually did qualify. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to name four countries that you probably would never see in the World Cup. Although this year they had 400 teams in the World Cup, so maybe. But I'm going to name four countries that are in. There's only 16 teams that qualify for the Olympics uh, as far as men's soccer. So team number one, Israel. Team number two, Mali. Team three, Paraguay. And team four, big shocker, the biggest shocker, the Dominican Republic. Wait, these are teams that are in it? These are teams that are in it. Now, Brazil's not in it, but you've got Israel, Mali, Paraguay, and the Dominican Republic. I didn't even know they played soccer in the DR. They're going to hit the ball with a bat. You've got to be looking at these teams being like, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 time out. Are you kidding me? Right. Oh, that's uh, that's pretty amazing. Well, I was, you know, it's it's nice when there's other teams in there, but you want the big the big dogs in there too. Yeah, so, uh, and the USA yeah, watched, is in. They're in, so I'm good. I watched, the USA uh, is in. Sorry. Uh, well, yeah, but and they hadn't been in for a couple of uh, right of rounds, so it's nice that the that the states is back in, and they're starting to win games they should win, and they're supposed to win because look. Whenever anybody plays the United States, they get psyched out of their mind in one of two ways. They want to beat the big dog, which in America, sure, uh, you know, geopolitically, and then they don't want to lose to uh, America. One of my roommates in college was a sprinter. He's black, and he was like, "Oh, I can't lose to a white guy sprinting." I'm like, "Really?" I go, "That's like enough pressure that you have to try and win the race. You don't want to lose to a white guy." He's like, "Well, it's just kind of a cultural <laughs> thing." I'm like, "Oh, well." So when everybody any plays the, you know, it's like when England plays the United States, they think they should just kick us all over the park and 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 win easily, and they don't. Right. Know? So I, I think probably most nations yeah. probably still look at it like, "Oh, the USA." You know, they don't realize we're maybe they do realize we're top twenty, but they probably still look at us like we're we're a bunch of amateurs. Right. So, uh, all right. So great. So why don't we take a break here? And um, uh, we've covered a few things, but we're going to get uh, Coach Willie Roy of the uh, the NASL and the Chicago Sting. Boy, those were uh, even the city uniforms. And I think they played at Soldier's Field, too. It just was was amazing. I got to give him some shtick, too, because I went to the University of Massachusetts to play with a player named Tasso Kazukis, uh, who was an All-American as a freshman. And you might want to oil that chair, Dave. But then. Um, <laughs> 
it's on my Christmas list. Oh my God. Um, but uh, yeah, and then he got drafted right out of, and so I went to go play with him and then he was gone. So uh, I'm going to give him some shtick about that, but he had a great NASL career as well. All right. You listen to Dave Gallegos and Kevin Flynn on Over the Ball. When we come back, we're going to talk to the legendary head coach of the Chicago Sting, Willie Roy. You're listening to OTB. All right, welcome back to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn and Dave Gallego. Uh, really excited, Dave, about uh, our next guest. He's the legendary head coach of the Chicago Sting. Uh, as a young man, I watched uh, this guy coach from the sidelines. Uh, coach Willie Roy, welcome to Over the Ball. Thank you. Now, Coach, it's it's interesting. You know, when I was doing a little deep dive, a little due diligence on you, um, I always knew you as this legendary head coach. And I didn't realize that you were a hell of a player in your day, a hell of a goal scorer. And you were uh, the first American in the national team to score at Azteca Stadium. So um, I, I, my props to you. It's, uh, it's amazing. How, how difficult was it to go from being an amazing player to, to being a legendary head coach? Well, I think the whole thing is uh, obviously uh, <clears throat> I didn't have a lot of coaching experience coming as a, from, from a player to becoming a coach. However, being a good teammate and learning about your different players and the great thing that actually happened in Chicago uh, that helped me coaching-wise is we had a lot of different nationalities, different clubs, German clubs, Polish clubs, Greek clubs, Croatian clubs, Serbian clubs, Spanish clubs. So you kind of learn the mentalities of all these different cultures and I think that really helped me become to understand different players. You know, when you start coaching, suddenly you have somebody from Chile on your team or somebody from Uruguay or somebody from England or somebody from Italy. They all have different little niches in their character. And so that really helped. You know, Coach, when I... And when I played, when I was in college, I got to play with a lot of these foreign teams, these clubs. Uh, there was a Greek club, like you're mentioning, like a Greek club, a Portuguese club, a, a Peruvian club. Hungarian and club. Learn, yeah, the Ukrainian club. And I got to play with different players and, and learned a lot about different cultures. Um, and you were, you were, in fact, born in Germany. You came over as a young man. Did you learn to play soccer originally in Germany as a young youngster? Well, actually, we had a strict dad. I was 13 when we immigrated. Uh, to this country, and it was done legally, I'm going to add. Uh, <laughs> That's important, because we're looking, you know, we thought we yeah. had you. Uh, I don't want the FBI to come chasing me now at my age. So, uh, no, no, you're an American. But, um, but anyway, my dad was totally anti-sports. Uh, uh, for him, it was important that we would get jobs, make a little money, and not wreck the shoes to play soccer in. Because right after the war, uh, money was hard to uh, come by. And I did join, behind his back, uh, 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 a club. And they gave me a uniform. And in those days, I was pretty skinny and small. I think they could have made a whole set of uniforms for the whole team, for the one that I got. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> yeah. I'm putting on this uniform, and I look on the other side of the field, there's my dad. So now how the hell can I play the game without being noticed? So the coach told me, hey, you got to go on the right side. 
No, I, yeah, I'm thinking my dad is standing there. It's not going to work. I'm a left back. I'm a left back. That's why I stayed on the left side, and the coach kept yelling, get on the right side. No, I didn't go. <laughs> but finally, he said, you am stupid. You don't know your left from your right. Get out of here. I was so happy. To eat. That was probably the only time I was happy that I was pulled out of the game before the game started. Yeah, well, well, Coach, you know your left from your right, but you also know your mother from your father, and that was your father standing there on the sidelines. So you you wanted to move. I get it. I hear you. Yeah, my eyes yeah, so, most days, Coach. It, it, I mean, you were part of American history, American soccer history. You were around when uh, the soccer in the in the seventies really really took on. Um, you know, tell tell us about the early days when uh, the NPSL merged with uh, the rival United Soccer Association. Tell us about the early days. The, they eventually they merged to become the NASL. But tell us about those early days where the that's the pre Pele days. Tell us an interesting story. The first story that comes to mind. Well, you know what? Uh, in those days, actually, um, I'm going to say it started in '65. Uh, you know, with all these different ethnic clubs, uh, which was actually kind of cool. And they did have the uh, U.S. Yeah. Open Cup already. And uh, it was yep. kind of nice that we had a chance with the uh, German club that I played for, the FC Hansa, that we ended up in the finals playing against a team from New York. And uh, so... But it wasn't really accepted by the news media at all. I mean, it was kind of like a local thing. But uh, we tied the game in New York 1-1. And then when we came back to play in Chicago, we actually, and I want to say that the president of the Hansa Soccer Club did a great job. We had a few thousand people that watched the, re uh, the return match, our home leg of the uh of the uh, you know championship series for the U.S. Open Cup, and so that was uh, that was really kind of nice. But you know the sad part is the uh, uh, when the first league started and then started playing for the Chicago Spurs, uh, we in '67 we lost the coin flip against the Chicago Mustangs. They were owned by the Chicago White Sox owner, so we had to move to Kansas City. And uh, my second home, actually, wow. uh, a beautiful town. Congratulations, Chiefs. Uh, and uh, yeah. uh, it was really, uh, you build up a name, uh, you build up a little bit of a tradition, suddenly you're moving into a brand new t uh, territory again, and you're starting up again. And like you guys know, in those days, none of the leagues really lasted any time at all. Yeah, but Coach, this is what we talk about, and, and it's why we have uh, you know Hall of Famers and legendary people like yourself on the show, because I think the young people today, and I, I know I sound like an old man when I say this, but a lot of them don't know all the sacrifices, all the passion, all the hard work uh, and sweat and toil that it took to grow this sport against all odds in America when people look down on you, wouldn't give you the money to play, wouldn't, you know, support you uh, locally. And it was these little ethnic teams that actually just kept the engine going and kept developing some players. And so we both feel, Dave and I both feel it's very important for us to sort of pay homage to people like yourself to to where soccer is now in this country. So on the heels of that, let, let me ask you this, Coach, and we'll get back to 
you know, you guys went in soccer bowl uh, in 1981, beating the Cosmos, which must have been amazing. But what I'm curious about is you're still, you and your son are still dealing, you know, developing young players. What's the biggest difference you've seen in some of the, um, in, in the American players now, the young kids coming up, as opposed to when uh, most of the kids that were playing in the United States were maybe ethnically based and or immigrants to now? Well, I think the uh, coaching structure nowadays, like Carson with his team, Elmhurst, uh, you know, everything is pretty well organized. When we got together, we right. took the bus, drove an hour on the bus, got off the bus. We had a dad that probably cleaned the uniforms, never played soccer himself. So we were pretty much on our own and developed on our own. And of course, we didn't play on nice fields. We played basically on potato fields. Right. Basically, when you hear the uh, Brazilian mm -hmm. stories, they played on the beaches where the ball bounces this way, that way. You learn to adapt and you learn to actually uh, uh, individually learn how to dribble better because there's not uh, somebody yelling, hey, there's two guys in front of you, don't dribble. Uh, nobody said anything. And then so you develop your own instincts right. and your own uh, uh, strong points. And there was no mom and dad yelling or cheering for you or yelling at the coaches. Now I think maybe it's a little bit overstructures. Uh, I watch Carson's right. sub team, and they're pretty much like a mixture of the old and the young, and uh, which I love to see. Mm. Uh, I wanted to talk to you about the NASL once again, and more specifically, you mentioned that the owner of your team back in the day did a good job, and you had maybe a couple of thousand people watching the game, and that was a big deal to you. Okay, so now you're coaching this thing, and now you're going to play. It, it was so strange. The NASL was so strange because you had these big markets, and then you had these really tiny markets. So Tell us about when you're going from Giant Stadium watching the Cosmos, playing the Cosmos in front of 50,000, 60,000 people to say then going to Rochester where there's you're lucky if there's 6,000 people. Tell us about the dichotomy and, and tell, tell me about the whole experience because that, that truly is remarkable to me. I think, you know, Dave and Kevin or Kevin and Dave, uh, I think the important thing is you go out there, obviously, that you want to win the game, that you really don't pay attention and you don't start counting people, whether they had a dozen or whether they had 60,000. I kind of found, it, uh, found that it was an honor. The larger the crowd that watched you, that means, hey, maybe we are achieving something because people are coming right. out to watch us. You know what? If you play in front of an empty stadium, you know, then maybe people don't have respect for you. So that, uh, the, you know, the mm -hmm. larger the crowd, the more motivated and the easier it was as a coach to motivate the players. They, you know, they're all actors on the field. They all want to show their best. And I think the bigger the audience, the better the game. Coach, let me ask you this. It must have been difficult. It must have been difficult. You're coaching a team. You're trying to to compete with a team like the Cosmos. Um, you're also trying to take in local players. You're trying to develop American players. And I think there was a lot of pressure on the coaches to win, but also they were supposed to try and play some American players. And that really, those two things kind of ran up against each other. I, I felt like a lot of pressure. Because I know for you, you had Jeff Cacciatore and a couple of these American guys that I would really identify with. 
In fact, I was telling the guys before, um, I got recruited to play at the University of Massachusetts. And the reason I went there was because they had an All-American from Canada named Tasso Kazukas, who was a Greek player. And I went to the University of Massachusetts and he got drafted by the Chicago Sting <laughs> and he left college and I never got to play with him. So, uh, but you gave a lot of American players a chance and that must have been very difficult in some ways. You know what? It actually uh, was a big blessing. We had to start four American players on the field. So what I had, I had a Charlie Fikes, a Rudy Glenn, a Brett Hall, a Steve Long, uh, a Mark Symington. I didn't have any problems when we wow. had injuries, whether I pulled somebody out or put the next guy in. And, you know, everybody, and I listened to your last show last week, and uh, I know the Cosmos name comes up an awful lot. And I'm saying to myself, sure. you know what? When the Cosmos saw our uniform, they lost that game before the game even started. Uh, we had some epic. Oh, yeah. Uh, without any question, if you look at the record and you see uh, games uh, where we beat the Cosmos uh, in New York, five to nothing, with you know, with all their stars, or the Transatlantic Cup where they yep. had some of the best teams in the world playing, and we beat the Cosmos four to three, or at Wrigley Field in front of a full house, we beat the Cosmos six yeah. to in a shootout. The Cosmos were our, uh, I shouldn't say uh, little sisters, but basically when they saw us, you know, <laughs> it was the end of the Cosmos uh, theory. Yeah. Wow. The, the, uh, thing, the thing we're in, such great players came out of yeah. Chicago. It was fun to watch. Yeah. No, you had you know, uniforms. They did have great uniforms, and I actually saw you wearing your Chicago Sting t-shirt with pride on, on YouTube. But uh, speaking about great players, so I wanted to ask you about, so there was, um, there was a pressure to play Americans, but then for financial reasons and getting people to, to, to getting a paid crowd, you needed to have some, some high-profile players. So you had the Pele's, the, the Johan Cruyffs, uh, Beckenbauer, Georgie Best, Gordon Banks. Tell me about the pressure that there was, and tell me specifically about when you personally had to recruit uh, a player like uh, a Carl Heinz Grinza. Well, you know what the good thing is? When Clive Torrey, uh, I don't know how uh, whether you guys know how I got into coaching, actually. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He, uh, Clive Torrey brought in his uh, assistant coach from Manchester United, uh, Malcolm Musgrove. And, Malcolm, uh, yep. Uh, the season before, I took over for Bill Folks, who was on that airplane crash, actually, in Munich and survived it. A wonderful man who had a good eye wow. for talent. So now suddenly uh, Clive Torrey comes in, tells the owner, Lee Stern, I want to bring in my own coach. I had no problem with it because at that time, I didn't even know whether I wanted to be a coach. But I just left the team that I coached for half a season. And a lot of them were my teammates the year before in 75 when I was a player with the Chicago Sting. And so anyway, uh, continuing, uh, I broke my leg in 76, and then Malcolm Musgrove took over, and we went preseason, we went to the Caribbean. And uh, it was kind of nice, sunshine, beautiful islands. Uh, 
I was not allowed to look at the women because I was married at the time, so I didn't do that. And uh, But anyway, uh, we played exhibition games. The first team to play in Cuba, in Havana, against the national team. And we had injuries um, even, uh, uh, in those days. So Malcolm would come and ask me, Willie, can you play the last 20 minutes? My leg was healed. You know, so I said, oh, sure. I ended up being the leading goal scorer with a broken leg on the mend. So I knew it wasn't going to be fun. So as soon as we got back, the first guy to call me is Lee Stern. And he says, how's the team looking? I said, Lee, you just hired a new coach. Why don't you ask him? I'm not going to get involved in this. Uh, unless you have a meeting at the office and we're all sitting there and you can say, you know, then I would I would honestly tell you what I thought at at the time. Well, the team started two and twelve, and then uh, uh, Lee said to Clive Torrey, the so-called puppet president at the time, he said we're going to make right. a coaching change. And Clive Torrey said, "Yeah, I guess you're right." Well, after two and twelve, it's a good time to uh, kind of think about that. So Lee called me and he said, "You're taking over the team." And I said, absolutely not. Not even got wow. to coach this bunch. He said, what do you mean? What do you mean? And, you know, he said, uh, I said, no. He said, what do you want? So I said, unless I am totally in control of bringing my own players, running the summer camps, anything to do with a soccer ball, uh, interviews for players, the whole thing, uh, I'm not touching it. So he he said, oh, okay, I agree. And he let me, and that actually helped me. And I think my German, American background helped me because when I went to get Karl-Heinz Granitzer, Jürgen Christensen from Hertha Berlin, uh, speaking German yeah. to them, I think was a big plus uh, for me. Dealing with Günther Netzer was a big plus when I got Arno Steffenhagen. Uh, from Hamburg, and they just won the UEFA European Championship and Horst Blankenberg. And I said to Günther when he picked me up at the airport, you know, we can't afford these. We don't have the kind of money for a transfer fee. He said, my dear friend, and we just met at the airport, he said, take him with you. We'll work things out. Don't worry about the transfer fee. And, uh, of course, that was the beginning of the uh, Chicago Sting, and then with the uh, best American players by far in the whole league, like I mentioned before, uh, we it was right. easy for me to substitute. And the other thing is, Karl Heinz was the number five leading goal scorer in Germany. Gerd Mueller went to Fort Lauderdale. He yeah. was the one in, in the Bundesliga and uh, in the league with Bayern Munich at the time. And then all the big names, right. Nation, Weisberg, Bogicevic. Kinalia, all those people that the Cosmo said. I had players, Ingo Peter, third division in Germany, Dieter Ferner, the goalkeeper, third division in uh, in Germany. So basically, I only had four players that I brought in that were first division players in Germany. Not household names, not household mm -hmm. names, but uh, very good soccer players and and they loved Chicago. 
once they came here and I showed them around downtown, the lakefront and everything, uh, it was really wonderful. You wow. know, and I think uh, yeah, you, you had a good eye for talent, obviously. And uh, I think a couple of players that you named there, they could, they're impactful players. They can make a difference. But I think one of the other things is, yeah, uh, they probably felt comfortable. There's a German community in Chicago. You could speak the language. Uh, and they love America. So, And Chicago is such a great town. Um, and you uh, guys had just such a legendary run. Um, yeah, like I think, you know, Coach, you're, you're, you're talking about, Maybe the Cosmos are this, this the glamour team, but Chicago was really a team that spoke to uh, so many people in the league. It was the uh, I, I'd say really the Cosmos, Chicago Sting, and Tampa Bay were the were the three teams that really uh, shine the most, and people watched. And, and you're obviously a big reason for that. Let me ask you this though: I, I've always I always ask this of, of coaches because I think to be a coach, it takes a certain type of person, a certain type of player. Um, I say it's going from being um, a warrior to a philosopher, really. Um, how difficult was that transition for you to say, like, okay, I can't play anymore, but I uh, I know the game, I know these players. Let me let me start to see if I can handle this. Uh, you know what? Uh, I used to practice with the team, so you know what? Uh, uh, they're not dummies. Players are not dummies. They can tell whether you played before, whether you know uh, when you have a team meeting, whether it makes sense or it doesn't make sense. So. I I think I was pretty open and honest, uh, you know, with the players, and they knew where they stood, and I knew where I stood as far as the team uh, the team was concerned. I think when it came to work, I believed in working. When it came to play, I believed, you know, to give them some slack, and you know, you don't want to be a disciplinarian all your life that you go through life and say, man, my dad was tough. You know, I couldn't get away with anything. I saw things that I didn't address at times uh, because they were not important. Uh, when we went on a European trip, we are the only team, I am positive, that played in Europe. And we played like three first division teams from Sweden, Melmo being one of them. They just were in the U uh, European Cup championships. They lost to an English club at the time. Uh, then we played Hertha Berlin as one of our repay deals for Karl-Heinz Grenitzer and Jürgen Christensen, the Danish international. Uh, and we didn't lose a game. And like everybody was shocked. No, the Cosmos had the glory, boys, but we had the six shooters with bullets in it. And that was the big difference. Uh, Coach, so we have to wrap it up. I, uh, I just had one more quick question. So obviously we see that the, the, uh, the MLS is doing things right and they are enormously successful right now. So really quickly, uh, what would you say led to the demise of the NASL? Going indoors uh, without any question. Going indoors? Yeah, playing indoors. Even though we set a record at the old Chicago Stadium, over 19,000. Oh, yeah. You saw that? You got like 19,000 people. Yeah. Over 19,000 Spectacular. People. So that was the biggest reason. Right. When you uh, tried to compete, you know, compete with the MISL. When the NDSL initially played indoors, we had a limited number of games. So we had mostly all weekend games where the kids, the families could come after going to church, having breakfast and then come watch the Chicago Sting play. And then when the missile started, suddenly it became like, uh, well, they're playing on Tuesday or on Thursday, 
because the Blackhawks were playing or the Bulls were playing. So we didn't have all the good dates. Right. And that kind of watered mm -hmm. the whole thing down. A lot of the great players left, never played indoors. Uh, and you know what? Like nowadays, I, I absolutely agree with you. The league now, if we would have had a stadium uh, like any other new stadium now, you would have to be in the waiting line to get a ticket to watch the Chicago Sting play mm -hmm. or the Cosmos, obviously. They were drawing extremely good or the yeah. Rowdies, you know. So uh, sometimes, you know what, they saw the 19,000. They started adding it up to 24 home games plus 19,000 plus number of dollars. And guess what? It was all flushed down the toilet. Mm, interesting. The Hmm. Well, Coach, uh, yeah, Coach, I'll, I'll tell you, this has been just an honor to be able to talk to you um, and uh, sort of meet you this way. You are a National uh, Soccer Hall of Fame entrant, and for damn good reasons, you've done so much for the game in this country. Uh, so many um, young ones and old ones owe so much to uh, the work that you've done. And um, I, I just want to say one thing that I discovered when I was uh, doing a little research on you. Uh, you were an all-American wrestler <laughs> in college. Amazing, amazing. So no wonder you were a good coach because if they didn't listen to you, you'd put them in a half Nelson and that, that'd be the end of it. <laughs> you know what? Even the owner was afraid of going on the mat with me. <laughs> exactly. Good man. Well, Coach Willie Roy, uh, Hall of Famer, thank you so much for joining thanks, us Willie. on the ball. It's, uh, it's really been wonderful to talk to you. And thanks again for everything you've done for the game in this country. You know what? I'm going to be watching you guys close, listening to you guys close from now on. And if I uh, see any little nicks or whatever, I'll make sure that my son Carson and I will give you guys a call. But you know what? I love your show. <laughs> Dave, you guys are doing a great job. So keep up the good work. Thanks, Coach. Very gracious of you, Coach. Thank you so much once again. You're Will welcome. Roy, folks. Oh, that was great talking to Coach Roy. I mean, you know, uh, just a legend. And it was nice to talk to him. You, you could tell he's got a good sense of humor. Uh, he was probably a taskmaster. He knew when to be tough. He knew when to uh, let the boys let their hair down a little bit. And he said he was married, so he didn't get to partake in a lot of the fun that the boys did off the ball. But uh, that's why I didn't get married when I was playing. <laughs> that's probably why I was playing in the meantime. So, uh, yeah, so great, great, great yeah. talking to him. Such and, great. Know, look, look he, Dave, he's he's true. You know, he's right because I grew up in Connecticut. You grew up uh, in New York. We talk about the Cosmos perhaps more than we really should. You know, because Chicago was this team. They had that that working class kind of you know blue collar team, but then they became like uh, you know this great team with a great tradition and a great city. No, I I agree with you. I mean, it, it's so great to hear these old. Names like you know Chicago Sting, the Rowdies. Uh, I mean, nobody yeah. mentioned nobody mentioned the Seattle Sounders, but you know these these oh, all right. bring they they bring back such such great memories. You know, it's interesting that he said that the start of the downfall was the indoor league. That was interesting. I did not yeah. expect him to say well, that. Dave, I didn't I didn't chip in chime in, but that is right when I started to play. You know, I got that was the indoor league that I played in. That was like, you know, it was it was, you know, I had a blast. I, I didn't want to, you know, stop playing soccer when I got out of college and I had a chance to play there and I kind of worked my way into it. But it was it was it was a bit of a circus act. You know, you're playing on the ice, you're playing in the rings, you're dumping it in the corner, you know, like a 
like you dump the puck. It's just, it's not the game. No, I, know, I, 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 I like foot skill, but it just wasn't the same. Yeah, like he said, because they, they had success. He, as he alluded to, they had 19,000 for a game, which is a sellout. And yeah. he said that obviously dollars and cents started to speak volumes and they started to add the games, but now they're getting crappy days. They're playing on Tuesdays instead of just solely on weekends. So again, that was an answer I did not expect to hear, but when you have a guy like that who's uh, behind the scenes and and in the league, yeah. he can tell you the, really what he felt, and that that was great. I didn't expect that. You know, I think what you know, and it's it's part of like, look, look, you cannot uh, just have great players and they turn into a great team. You need to have a team. You know, yep. and I think you know part of what he did when he went to Germany was to kind of get impactful players that were in their prime that would play show the other ones how, you know, how the style was, the system they played around. And so you, you surround those four players that he brings over from German first division, and, and that's impactful. That's really exactly, great. Absolutely. So. And, and he did become a household name. He didn't start off as a household name. Then again, Canalia, or as my father said, Chinaglia, he wasn't yeah. a household name either in this country until he came to the Cosmos. So uh, right. anyway, just fascinating stuff. And, Good stuff. And he, like every guest, I could just go on and on with questions because this, it was just a fascinating time in U.S. soccer history. Yeah, I, I try to keep talking to Chicago Sting, and you keep going back to Canalia and, and the Cosmos. See, this no wonder Coach Roy's got a problem with it. That's, that's we always mentioned the Cosmos. Oh, he, so, just texted, he just texted me. He just cursed me out. He did. He, just said, he deserves it. He so, said, Cosmos, uh, Cosmos suck. And then he said, you don't know who this is. Uh, I know who it is. It's him. Well, <laughs> you know, one guy I want to get on, too, I really like talking to him, is Ricky Davis. So let's get him in a couple Let's of do weeks. it. Fun. And next Let's week, we're going to have John Harks, Haruki, uh, one of the first <laughs> Americans to go overseas. So, hey, everybody, that's all the time we have today on Over the Ball. Do us a favor, will you please? This show is starting to grow in its recent relaunch. Uh, give us a, a, some love on Facebook, Twitter, uh, TikTok, everything we're doing here. We have a lot of people that love this game. Uh, I, I've always tried to bring an American perspective, my perspective of growing up in this game and watching it grow. And we need your support. So uh, give us a listen. Give us a look. Give us a thumbs up. Whatever it takes. Uh, reach around. We don't care. Uh, but give us some help there, folks. All right? That's all the time we have for Dave Gallego. I'm Kevin Flynn. Uh, or as a casting director once called me, Kevin Flynn. We'll talk to you next time on OTB. Bye, everybody. Call or text us at 424-229-2247. That's 424-229-2247. 